0: Hello, my friends. Today, we are talking to David, the co-founder of Stellar, and we discuss the founding story of Stellar cryptocurrency. We dive deep into the benefits and inner workings of blockchain technology, and we look at what the world will be as there's more innovation brought into digital currencies. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Dude, this is exciting, though. I like the fact that I'm going to get to talk to you about cryptocurrency
1: because you're like Mr. Crypto. Uh, maybe. <laughs> Probably a lot of people who are even more Mr. Crypto than I am. But um, I mean, I mean, I guess, relatively speaking, I was a, a somewhat latecomer to the whole uh, blockchain scene. And I, I but, you know, I got into it with Stellar because Stellar had kind of like a slightly different take that seemed more uh, more interesting to me so what was more interesting about it well um the thing that never quite made sense to me uh is that i i mean the the way i look at it is blockchain gave us these two like really amazing things that you know before bitcoin like if you'd asked me about either one of them i would have said this is impossible right so one of them is how do you commit transactions irreversibly and atomically across sort of mutually distrustful parties who've maybe don't even, never even heard of each other before, right? So the idea that like, we could both agree that I've sent you a Bitcoin and like, we can never go back and change that. That was uh, pretty surprising. And then the second thing that was pretty surprising is that we could create some new virtual currency and distribute it in such a way that there was a limited supply, but people actually believed it had a huge amount of value, right? I mean, the idea, uh, 12 years ago, that, you know, Bitcoin would be worth $50,000 is like uh, unbelievable. Right. So, uh, that said, the, the virtual currency thing never interested me as much because it seems like we already have money and we also have like economists who study it and who like manage central banks and try to set monetary policy in a way that's like good for the country and so on. And so I was never on board with the idea of, of, replacing money with with an and and replacing economists with like an algorithm that no one can change but uh you know i did agree that sort of payments were broken and that there's a lot of people in the world who are underbanked uh and it's very expensive to provide uh, financial services to people and there's very little innovation and so the idea of creating something that could have the benefits of blockchain in terms of being you know self-serve for developers to come and implement things but that also worked really well with just uh, normal uh, money or, or other sort of traditional assets uh, seemed really appealing to me. And so that's how uh, when Jed approached me in like 2014, I got, uh, I got very interested and said, yeah, maybe I could actually join you guys and work on this. What were you doing at the time? Well, I mean, my, I, what's still my day job, which is that I'm a, a professor of computer science at, uh, at Stanford, but uh, Jed, he approached me, I think it was June of 2014. And we had a mutual friend. I mean, I'd known him before. He, I'd invited him to give a keynote at, a, at a, a workshop on peer-to-peer systems many years before. But he approached me through a mutual friend and, and then turned out his office was relatively near my house. And so uh, we went and talked and he explained the stellar thing to me, and he said, well, you know, one of the things we want to do is, you know, we want to fix our consensus, we want to come up with a good consensus algorithm for this, and, you know, maybe you have some students who might want to work on this or something. And and I said, well, you know, this is kind of right up my alley, this distributed systems and consensus, you know, maybe I could, you know, be an advisor to here. And and so he wrote me a, an offer that was sort of multi-tiered, that could not have like multiple levels of involvement what i found was that the the entire next week whatever i was supposed to be doing at stanford i was actually daydreaming about this problem and i was like wait a sec you know this problem is like hard enough that nobody's solved it yet but it's tractable enough that i think i can crack it and here's this immediate application uh, that that could potentially uh you know make the world a better place and you know help underbank people and promote innovation uh and you know sort of bring transparent markets places where we don't have them and so I was like, that's kind of really the sweet spot for research. So I said, well, Jed, why don't I come uh, actually join you guys full time? And because it's summer, so I can easily sort of change my involvement at Stanford. And uh, and so then I just went for the next three months full time. Then I've been sort of on and off full time or part time uh, since then. So
0: that's, have you, have you like done this advisory thing before? Was this the first time that you've ever done it?
1: Oh, yeah, it's pretty common for um for uh, faculty members at Stanford to advise companies, and, and, it, and it can go, you typically, nominally, when you're full time at Stanford, you have approximately 20% time to consult, so it's normal to spend a day a week someplace outside of Stanford, um, or you know, up to 130 hours a quarter if you're doing it uh, hourly. And so yeah, so that involvement can take uh, can take uh, any number of forms it can be just a couple hours a, a month kind of thing or it can be a one day a week thing or you're allowed to take a leave and uh, where Stanford doesn't pay you and you just work someplace else and you know at Stanford because they don't they want you to commit it to Stanford I think you have up to two you can take two years to leave every seven years right so they want you on campus at least every five out of seven years but uh, there's no problem taking a quarter off in summers you can always take off cause you're not, you're not on hard money for the summer. That's pretty
0: cool. I saw like yep. I was doing my research and talking about you with the team. I was like, dude, this guy's super smart. I was laughing because you're like, you've got MIT, Harvard. And then just now you're telling me you now you're a professor at Stanford and you had done work with those other. I was like, is he, did he just write like a list of logos that sounded awesome and then went around <laughs> and collected them? <laughs> <laughs> tell me tell me about like your upbringing as a kid did you desire to to go
1: to these schools what were you into What was I into Well I guess uh from an early age I was uh kind of into locks and keys. So I, I guess there was, there's, there's that, which m- maybe is indicative of, of how, I, how I ended up getting, getting in, into my career. So, uh, but I would say through, you know, in high school, I was mostly into to music and I, I grew up in, in Boston. And well, when I was like, you know, I moved there when, when I was about 10 years old, And so, you know, there's, there's a thriving sort of underground music scene in Boston. So I was really into that. I was like doing a zine with a friend to interview bands and stuff. And then I did radio, uh, when I got to college. But, you know, I always had a little bit of a, you know, sort of, uh, thing about authority, I guess you could say. Um, and so, so one of the things that, that kind of drives me crazy is when in the name of security, like, uh, less smart people prevent like smarter people from like doing what they need to do, right? Um, and so this could take the form of like you're just a software developer and you need like you know root privileges to do something, and like the policy says you can't because some system administrator like won't let you do that, right? But one of the formative, uh, one of my formative experiences after college. So I I applied to a bunch of grad schools, and I actually got rejected everywhere I applied, um, except the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, which lost my application. Uh, But anyway, I didn't have any options. And my undergrad advisor was like, "Hey, well, why don't you just stick around at Harvard? I'll just hire you as research staff for a year, and then you can you can apply again," which is a really good deal. So, uh, so I got a job working uh, for my advisor, Mike Smith, was his name. And, you know, one of my jobs was to kind of at the time, even PhD students didn't have root privileges on their workstations on their own desks. And you know, things were different back then. Like this was before the days of SSH. So most login remote logins involved sending passwords and clear text over the network and stuff. So you didn't want people snooping on the network. But still, it was very restrictive to people who wanted to do operating systems research. So one of the things that I did was sort of b- break this monopoly that the the system administrators had on sort of administrative privileges. And, uh, you know, I even did some things that <laughs> a little bit pushing the envelope. Like I wanted to have DNS control. And and so, uh, so that we could like add our own hosts and stuff. And we'd had some problems where like we wanted to make some changes to host names and it required, like there was some, it took some time for those to go through. And so at one point, one of the, one of the updates didn't go through in time. And so as a result, it went through much later when we didn't expect it and somehow send mail started failing on a faculty member's machine and that faculty member ended up losing an entire day's worth of email because I guess you weren't you weren't saving copies of outgoing emails by default at the time. and so that person was extremely upset. and so I was like, you know damn it, like I want uh, I want to get, uh, get c- control of this. so I I, I found you know I kind of read the source code for the script. I found that there was this ambiguity between uh, calling, the is space, which is a function that returns true for uh, spaces, tabs, but also a couple of other characters like Control K and Control L, and actually parts of the s- script that were just searching for like spaces and character returns. So I somehow, uh, by embedding like some Control K characters in the script that they were processing to do the DNS, I was able to kind of force them to delegate our subdomain to us. And so I kind of did that on a Friday and then on Monday I was like I told the IT, this kind of central university IT people. So guys, this is what happened. And after I'd requested several times to do this and I was like so this is what happened and uh, this is how it's working now and if you change it you risk like, you know, lo- losing faculty members more email or whatever. And and at that point they were just like fine, we'll just take the path of least resistance. So when I left that job, they gave me a little plaque saying uh, creator of the eecs.harvard.edu domain because I had sort of created that DNS subdomain <laughs> through sort of uh, somewhat illegitimate uh, means. I love it. But anyway, that, that you know, you can sort of trace that. That's why I it's interested in my thesis was on a network file system in which sort of anybody could unilaterally like add their own file server and be part of the namespace and then you can trace that into my work in peer-to-peer systems uh and that's obviously uh what appeals to me about uh about blockchain that you know if i want to set up a traditional uh financial services company you know i need to get payment rails and banks and stuff and these people have first-class access to the payment Networks, uh, and I'm kind of a second class citizen, right? I'm programming to whatever APIs they deem, you know, uh, necessary to provide me, which might not be what I need. Um, and so the idea that you can have a sort of egalitarian API where I don't care if you're a PhD student at Stanford or, you know, a giant company like IBM, if you're programming for blockchain, everybody has access to exactly the same APIs and that sort of forces you It it sort of makes it inevitable that anybody can innovate. So there's no longer this sort of gatekeeping function that if you have ideas, but you don't have access to the payment rails, you can't necessarily implement those ideas. Yeah, but that's how you maintain
0: control. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Right? Like, I want my fees. I want my money. Right? That's when I saw what you guys are doing, I was like, this is awesome. I wonder what type of legislation (laughs) is going to come out because I got... So I have a very small amount of experience, about three years in the financial services industry where I was building like large scale applications. And so I know enough to understand this concept of like, I want to send money to someone in another country, it will hop several times through different like the wire will go through multiple systems. It's craziness. And everyone's kind of taking a little fee and a little chunk as the money's going. And but if I could just send the money like directly to the person. Right That would make so much more sense, but it would cut out all of these existing networks and all of these fees that they're getting,
1: yeah. I mean, look, i don't i don't uh, I don't mind fees as long as you know there it's it's not rent seeking as long as I'm getting something in return, and in particular, as long as there's competition so that if you're charging too much, someone else can can come along and 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 uh, and compete. I mean, I don't think that. I don't think blockchain is the right uh i think it's a good infrastructure i don't necessarily think it's the right uh sort of end user interface for you know six billion people who might want to uh you know send money at some point but what what i don't want to ha- so there's value in sort of owning the end the, the customer experience being able to provide services like password reset when you know when people lose their atm card or their their password but what's bad is when you have you know sort of you, you no longer have the need to innovate because you can sort of like lock out because nobody else can 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 um you know the people who can innovate don't have access and since you have access you don't really need to innovate and the innovation of course also includes better experience lower prices uh, lower latency things like that. So, what does Stellar do? How does Stellar help solve these problems? So. Stellar is, uh, is specifically designed for around the idea of issued assets. So the idea is there's, you know, sort of in contrast to algorithmic stable coins, um, you know, things like MakerDAO, where there's some fancy algorithm that manages to keep this coin in line with uh, the value of the dollar. What what we do is we say, look, actually, as a society, we have invested a fair amount in sort of this whole regulatory infrastructure to make sure that our banks are solvent and, you know, ideally don't rip off customers and things like that. So we should leverage that, and we should have our, you know, banks and other regulated financial institutions issuing digital dollars and uh, other digital currencies. Um, that then have all the advantages of blockchain, like you can send them around the world and, and you know, in, in just seconds. Um, you know, in particular, one thing that uh, that happens a lot is if you get between, if you're going between sort of two currencies that are not, you know, like g7 currencies or whatever you know if you want to get from philippine pesos to nigerian naira or something right now you probably have to buy dollar and and so now you're taking like exchange rate risk on that dollar if your money gets stuck in the middle and like doesn't make it to nigeria and has to get converted back to pesos you might not get the same exchange rate like there's all this like complicated stuff and so what we want to do is allow people to issue all these various currencies and allow anyone to trade atomically currencies that uh, were issued by different parties, um, like maybe a Nigerian bank and and a a Philippine bank, and also potentially trade through uh, intermediary currencies without ever taking the currency, the either uh, exchange rate risk or even solvency risk on the intermediary currencies. Uh, We call that a path payment, where you go from currency A to B to C, and there's there's never a, a scenario in which you end up holding the bag on B. You either have A or you got all the way to C. Interesting and so this is something that's available to happen right now that's right so basically you you know uh anyone can create an account on stellar i mean there's a so we do have a cryptocurrency it's called the stellar lumen and there's a minimum balance so to create the account you need um you know one lumen so which is worth about 50 cents and then to add extra kind of uh, balances in other currencies you have to add like half a lumen so let's say for the price of a dollar you can create a, a a stellar uh account what you do is you generate a public key and pr- you have the private key the public key names the account you create this by you know depositing uh your two lumens which are worth about a dollar into this account and, uh, and then you can sort of add balances of, of various currencies that you uh, want to hold. But also, as the owner of an account, you can issue your own currency. Uh, and the only catch is, of course, that the the name of your account is part of the name of the currency that you've issued, right? So you can't just issue U.S. dollars; you have to issue like U.S. dollars that were issued by your particular account. So in my case, like you shouldn't trust a dollar that I issue because I'm I'm not a bank. You know, who am I? How do you know I'm going to redeem my dollar? But there are organizations like uh, like say uh, Circle and, and Paxos and uh, and someone who have issued dollars, and they have a way that you can redeem these dollars, and so as long as those organizations and their banks stay uh solvent and you know uh the, then you can basically trust that this digital dollar is equivalent to uh to a a real dollar interesting okay
0: so where did that name lumens come
1: from well um <laughs> It's kind, of, it's kind of funny, so we, we first, uh, initially when we launched, we had this older code base that was a fork of this other blockchain, Ripple, but, uh, but we wanted to kind of start over and not do backwards compatibility because we had, the, you know, the original Stellar didn't have my consensus algorithm in it, it was just kind of a way to g- like get our, you know, get us out there. Um, and so we decided that we should change the name when we switched over to the, the entirely new blockchain that we'd written from scratch. And you know, I like uh, biking, you know, I, I commute by bicycle or bicycle and train, but sometimes just bicycle. Um, and at, at night, you know, this visibility is, is an issue. But uh, nowadays, you can get these really powerful uh, bike lights that... Um, that uh, illuminate like you know they're like brighter than like a motorcycle headlamp you know and they can, these things will run for like an, an an hour like one brand that I like is Light in Motion for example I wouldn't say their lights are that durable. I've had some batteries burn out, but the the beam pattern and the brightness, like really phenomenal. So anyway, when I first started getting into these lights that just transformed my experience biking at night, um, I was so excited that I always just wanted the light with the most lumens. I even named my desktop machine at, at Stanford Lumen. And this was kind of before, and then and then they were talking about like, so should we change the name? Uh, and then someone else, actually, I think it was Joyce, suggested the name Lumen. And I was like, yeah, I love lumens. We should totally do that. <laughs> I love it. That's good. That's so good. a lot of people think my machine is called Lumen because I'm naming it after Stellar. It's actually the other way around. <laughs> That's beautiful.
0: That's beautiful. I, I actually got to do an interview with one of the creators of of uh, Ripple. So that was mm-hmm. some of the initial inspiration. Yeah, so Jed
1: McCaleb, who's uh, my co-founder at Stellar, was uh, he was a co-founder of uh, Ripple as well. So, oh, cool. In some sense, uh, Stellar was he basically had differences with his co-founder at Ripple that were sort of irreconcilable, and so Stellar is kind of his attempt to uh, to do it right, and so that's why he got in touch with me. One of the, uh, you know, there were several things that he I think regretted about Ripple including sort of like the for-profit structure that left, you know, ambiguity about are you serving the network or are you serving shareholders? Um, And, but one of the things he regretted was the consensus algorithm. Um, And so that's why he got in touch with me. Um, And, you know, obviously uh, that's where the stellar consensus algorithm came from.
0: We have such a wide audience, like people that specialize in all sorts of different things. So can you like, just give me, like pretend I'm a three-year-old and explain mm-hmm. to me what a consensus algorithm is.
1: Sure. So uh, so consensus is this problem in distributed systems where you kind of have a bunch of agents who can communicate by sending messages to one another. And you give each of the agents an input. And the goal is for them all to, to, to create an output. And you want everybody to create the same output and you want that output to actually be equal to one of the inputs that you provided because if you don't have that then everyone could just always output 0 and and that would be an easy consensus algorithm and so typically uh you know there's there's three properties that you would want of a consensus algorithm one is agreement you want to make sure everybody outputs the same value or at least all the nodes that haven't failed second validity that's that the output value actually equals one of the input values so it's not a trivial problem and uh, a third is fault tolerance, which is that, you know, you'd like to be able to survive the failure of an agent at any point in the, the execution of your system and still have the non faulty nodes output a value. So sounds, so, you know, sounds, sounds like something reasonable to want. However, it turns out that there's this, there's a seminal result in distributed systems due to Fisher, Lynch and Patterson, which says that in a purely asynchronous system, meaning if you don't know how long the delay is on messages it's actually impossible to achieve all three of safety liveness and fault tolerance so liveness would be sort of termination the fact that the thing will actually terminate an output a value right, so this means if you want a protocol that it can survive failures, it, it's consensus in the sense that it will output a value that was an input value and everyone will output the same thing. Um, and also, it won't get stuck. It will, you know, it, it will, uh, it, well, not stuck, but it will definitely complete and output a value. That's actually impossible unless you start making some assumptions like saying, well, you know, if a node hasn't responded in, in an hour, then it's like, it's really dead. So this this means that this seemingly simple problem of consensus is actually fairly complex because you you can't sort of can't have it all and so what people typically do is they they design protocols that are safe and fault tolerant always but are not guaranteed to terminate so they lack liveness but they will terminate kind of in practice and they also can be guaranteed to terminate if you make other assumptions like for example the delay of messages doesn't grow without bounds so the typical the typical setting for a consensus algorithm is to say you have uh say some number of nodes like uh, uh like n nodes and you have some quorum size that might be you know n over two plus one or something like some majority of the nodes and uh and so then as long as there's a quorum that's alive they will they will uh, agree on um they will be able to achieve consensus basically subject to certain timing requirements so the that's kind of a a typical consensus uh setting that what i said where you have n over 2 plus 1 a majority of nodes that only works uh if you assume that nodes that fail do so by just crashing and dying right if you assume that the nodes that are faulty start acting arbitrarily, like maybe they're taken over by an attacker whose express goal is to try to mess up consensus. Then it turns out that uh, y- you need something like, uh, well, you basically, out of three F plus one nodes for some integer F, you can survive only F failure. So basically you can, you can survive l- less than uh, a third of the nodes uh, failing. You must be talking to some smart three-year-olds, dude. <laughs> uh, sorry, yeah, I guess this is... <laughs> <laughs> I...
0: I I'm learning a lot. I'm following it, but I am not
1: this smart. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe I should back off and say, like, so why do we care about consensus? There we go. Um, and the answer is that if you want a replicated system, uh, you actually need all the different replicas to agree on what has actually happened to the system so that they end up with the same state. And so the typical way that you build a distributed system, and in particular, most blockchains work this way is that the uh the blockchain itself is what's known as a deterministic replicated state machine so everybody agrees on the initial state of the machine everybody agrees on the entire history of operations that have happened to this all the operations are deterministic therefore everybody ends up uh, in the same end state all right so the consensus is you're just trying to get everybody to agree on something uh exactly exactly all right cool and so Bitcoin does this, for example, so Bitcoin has a solution, which is actually not safe. So it is guaranteed to terminate as guaranteed liveness and it is guaranteed fault tolerance, but it does not have guaranteed uh, safety. But uh, what they do is they make it so safe in practice because they, uh, in order to compute the Bitcoin blockchain, you have to expend a huge amount of computation and, and. This computation takes into account the entire history of all transactions. So as you add more and more blocks and more and more transactions to Bitcoin, the amount of work that went into this blockchain uh, grows uh, greater and greater. And if you wanted to rewrite all of history in Bitcoin, you would have to redo all the work that these miners have done. And the thing is even though the work itself is very hard to do, it's very easy to verify that someone has done the work. So you couldn't just create a fake bitcoin and say, well, I've just done, you know, all this hashing work because people would just check your blockchain and say, "Oh no, you haven't actually done that work." Either the hashes don't match or there, you know, there there aren't enough zeros, you know, kind of the hardness factor wasn't there when you did did the work. Is is
0: Stellar a like a currency that you can mine. Can you explain to me, like mineable versus non-minable? Yes.
1: So that's so. This is kind of remember how I said at the beginning that the two thing, the two amazing things that Bitcoin brought us were this uh, consensus essentially across mutually distrustful parties who've never heard of one another second in an open membership setting and second of all the ability to create a new currency out of thin air it in such a way that there's a limited supply and people believe it has value so that's where the mining comes in the mining is the work done to uh to co- to compute over the bitcoin blockchain and and uh, and extend it by an, one additional block so that the history grows and basically what mining is is it's the uh is it's the reward it's it's the process of obtaining new cryptocurrency as a reward for making it harder for uh people to rewrite the history so basically as a reward for increasing the security of bitcoin you get some new bitcoin like you know whatever it is six six and a quarter uh bitcoin or something uh, or something uh bitcoin right so this is really cool and it's open membership it's uh it's it, it, it you know it is a, has a reasonably high degree of security although there have been sort of forks or, or times when the history has been rewritten by some number of blocks um but by and large it's worked uh, it's worked pretty well it has a pretty high uh, ecological impact because it requires electricity to run all these machines to solve these mining problems um and it adds latency In the case of bitcoin you you probably want to if you really care because it's a high value transaction you may want to wait for like five block confirmations and so that could take you know the better part of an hour uh for example to do and so stellar with stellar we went in a different direction we said look we don't want to we don't want to do this mining because we want to concentrate primarily our use cases, people issuing assets on this network. And so you don't want to be in a situation where maybe you're super successful and you know, your cryptocurrency has a market cap in the tens or even hundreds of billions of dollars. Right. And then some central bank comes on and says, great, we want to issue, you know, a trillion dollars worth of currency on this thing. Well, now if the security of these transactions that are, that are happening depends on the mining rewards. Those mining rewards depend on the value of the cryptocurrency. So you now have this cryptocurrency, which is worth less than the the digital fiat currency that's been issued on the network. And so you're using the less valuable thing to secure the more valuable thing or the value of the less valuable thing to secure the more valuable thing. And that equation doesn't work. So it'll work fine up until people start using the network for, for, you know, most of the value starts being not the cryptocurrency, but the other currencies. And so, uh, and so kind of what's different in Stellar's setting is that, well, if we're primarily designing for these people who are going to be issuing currencies, well, then you're kind of trusting the people who are issuing the currency, uh, the digital currency to be solvent and to be, you know, either honest or in a, you know, uh, uh, in a country where they can be held legally accountable if they, if they do something bad. Um, and so if we're trusting them for solvency and, and being honest and and to redeem these these digital assets why don't we also trust them for for consensus right and so and so that way you could say hey you issue on stellar you tell people that hey this thing is worth a dollar because you can redeem it with me and I'll, I'll give you a dollar. But by the way, you know, here's my server. And this is a server that I listen to when I'm redeeming these digital dollars you're sending back to me. So if you care about my digital dollar, then you should listen to my server and make sure that you agree with it before you think anything has happened. So the central idea behind my consensus algorithm, which is called SCP, the Stellar Consensus Protocol, is that you have all these nodes in the system and each node says, hey, these are the other people that that I want to agree with. So basically, I won't believe that anything happens unless you agree uh, also that it has happened, right? And this ensures that you and I, our views of the database will never get out of sync. And so the assumption kind of underlying stellar is what I call the internet hypothesis. It says that basically, if you look at kind of the organizations that everybody wants to stay in sync with, that each organization wants to stay in sync with, that transitively any two participants that you care about will share some uh, some transitive common dependence right and and this i call it the internet hypothesis because this is true of the internet right there's no formal definition that the internet is the particular ipv4 ipv6 network that contains you know google and amazon and uh, and apple and and whatever but if i showed you another network that had the same network protocol but didn't have any of the existing websites there's no way you'd believe that that's the internet right so we all kind of have this notion that we know what the internet is even though it's not strictly defined and the internet has this sort of transitive connectivity property where sort of if you're in china you can't uh access google right but you can certainly access stanford and stanford can access google so kind of transitively it's still one internet and if you set created a network that was entirely disjoint from the existing internet you know no one would think that was the internet so that's the same way in which we want to tap these relationships these dependencies between people to have the whole world agree on what the state of the stellar network is without sort of having to prescribe it in a in a centralized way
0: yeah as you were explaining it, it sounded like decentralized consensus I don't know if that's
1: sounds yeah, right that's basically but. that's basically what it is i mean say so, you know you could you could argue that it's on a spectrum right that it's maybe not quite as decentralized as as bitcoin but it is uh but it is open membership and more importantly there's no there's no central party that decides who has one importance it may turn out if the federal reserve came and issued a digital dollar on stellar you can bet that almost everybody would want to be in sync with whatever the federal reserve we call it a validator that's like their copy of the uh of the ledger state but uh you know not everybody uh would have to and certainly people could as to be in sync with other uh, organizations like, you know, the European Central Bank. And so if then the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank started disagreeing, then I would just stop and I would not accept anything. And I'd say, we got, you know, like, just, hold on. I don't believe anything anymore because like these two people I think are so important, like seem to be out of sync. Oh, interesting. So that can be configured.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. You guys are like blowing my mind. This is actually really, really interesting. You know, I found you because I saw on the news, I think you were doing some work with Ukraine, like the Ukrainian government chose you to help figure out their strategy for uh, digital currency. And I started reading about it and looking into Stellar. And I was like, this looks this looks really, really, really interesting. And I was thinking to myself, okay, well, these Ukrainians, if they're picking them and they're, they're a country and they need help with their strategy, there are a lot of countries out there. And so other countries are going to start looking like who can I use for this? And then they're going to get all Ukrainians friends. And then eventually this is just going to grow and grow. And, and this company, Stellar is going to get good at helping countries deploy these digital currencies. So I want to experiment and own some. So I bought some lumens, I think is what we're calling them, right? They're stellar mm-hmm. lumens. That's what I bought on on Coinbase. So I'm going to buy some of these lumens because, because I want to keep up with what's going on with Stellar. I think it's. I think it's just cool when things are out there that I don't understand, but I, but they're interesting enough for me to keep checking
1: in on them. I like those types of things. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, ultimately, I think that Stellar can be the glue that uh, that allows all these different, uh, you know, digital currencies to to be able to interoperate. Um, I mean, I sort of one of the things that we've often said is that we want. We want we want Stellar to be like email for money, basically. So so basically, most a lot of people who send email, um, they use Gmail, right? And you know that's fine. So Google might own some like large fraction of the email, uh, you know, in, in in some countries. But the point is that email itself is an open protocol. And so if you want to use Yahoo Mail or you want to use you know Hotmail or, or whatever, like you, you can use that um, as well. And they can sort of interoperate with all these other, uh, email providers. And also if you're crazy, like me, I wrote my own mail server from scratch. Right. And so, uh, and so like I had the ability to innovate and interoperate with all these other systems because it's on, uh, on a level, uh, playing field. And I don't know, you know, my email system might not be right for most people, but it's right for me and it's open source. And so other people are, are welcome to use it. Um, What's it called? and uh it's called mail avenger mail <laughs> um <laughs> nice. so uh and so and so this is in contrast to something like facebook messenger right where like you know facebook messenger is whatever facebook says it is you know you can use facebook software if you want to interoperate with, with that uh, you know they own all the messages and it's kind of like you can't innovate if you have like some cool idea even though they did let you innovate um if you Built a company around Facebook Messenger and you were successful, Facebook could just pull the rug out from under you. They could say, "Hmm, that's a nice profit margin you got there. Uh, how about you give us fifty percent of your profits and we won't like shut you down, right?" And like you'd, you'd be at their mercy basically, right? And so we're specifically designing Stellar such that like you can't be at anybody's mercy. Like if there was some issuer that that issued, you know super valuable like let's say someone put like a trillion digital dollars on this thing right then everybody would want to be in sync with that uh, that person's validator because that would be like such an important asset trading on the stellar network but if that person acted like too much of of a uh, too erratically and started like not approving transactions or trying to block things the rest of the world could say like you know what we're going to kind of we're going to remove you uh we're no longer going to listen to you we're going to come to consensus on our own because like you're basically hindering the operation of the network so you can still follow us but we're not going to listen we're not going to wait for you for agreement and ultimately i think that that's kind of that's 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 really the only thing the only model that works where like different people have different amounts of clout but the clout is determined in a kind of decentralized way um, and that's how the internet works, which was the huge inspiration for Stellar's consensus algorithm, right? There's no there's no kind of internet authority that this, this you know designates tier one ISPs, right? So there are these tier one ISPs that are so big that they don't buy transit from anyone, right? But what's a tier one ISP is kind of in the eye of the beholder and it actually changes over time and there's very interesting market dynamics and sometimes people pay chi- play chicken right like there was um a famous case where uh where level three uh was this isp that uh went to this other uh isp called cogent cogent is a famously kind of low price isp so typically you'd use them uh wherever you can and and, and other People for for where Cogent doesn't work too well, but uh, Level Three went to Cogent and they were peered and they said, uh "Hey, Cogent, you're not really a Tier One ISP. How about you pay us for transit, uh, or else we'll depeer you?" And Cogent was like, um "Okay, we dare you." And so then there was a period of time when suddenly people couldn't communicate uh, because Cogent and Level Three like had uh, you know Level Three had like depeered them, and this was a big deal. And then finally, you know, they come up came up with some settlement uh which of course is confidential and they reconnected my guess is they're still peering but like cogent had to like carry more of the long-haul traffic but the point is there was so much pressure from customers on both sides particularly level three side, since they were a more they weren't like a budget isp but then this kind of turned around and the precedent might have bit level three in the future because then what happened was level three i think had a contract with with netflix and Cogent, which is like typically not viewed as a Tier One ISP because they just have the end users, right? So they just have the eyeballs. Uh, Comcast uh, went up to Level Three and said, uh, "So Level Three, it's a pretty nice contract you just inked with uh, Netscape. It'd be a shame if like suddenly everybody started having like really crappy experiences with Netflix. How about you pay us for transit to like reach our our customers, right? And Level Three actually had to to cave to that. So there's there's this like there's this sort of game of of clout that goes on and uh you know some people do have a lot more clout in the system than others and maybe they abuse the clout uh you know but uh it has actually worked to create this global network called the internet that is not centrally managed and that works pretty well so so it's it's kind of remarkable that this works and that's why I want to do the same thing for consensus so that you could basically not only communicate with anybody in the world but perform secure atomic transactions with anybody in the world you know trading you know arbitrary assets that kind of any two parties in the world have have issued um just the way sort of anyone can send email to anyone uh today over the internet that's interesting has anyone used the phrase internet of payments
0: yet I mean, I think a phrase that we've used a stellar is email, uh, email for payments. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I understand how email servers work. So I, I do know some stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my background software engineering for 17 years, and I primarily focused on like B2B, uh, large scale applications. And so I, when you started explaining it about email servers, right. Cause it goes email server to email server. There's lookups and everything, but and I don't have a great verbal explanation for it, but there's an excellent mental picture in my mind about how email works and exchanges and, and that format. But uh, when you said that format applied to payments, it just instantly clicked. It's like, I yeah. get what you guys are doing now. So t- explain to me, so I, I'm only at 33, right? So I grew mm-hmm. up and the internet, the browsers were like super, super basic, right? I think at some point, or at the beginning, there weren't even really the browsers, but I do remember, because my dad was an engineer, so he would give me little projects and things like that. But help me understand the internet without
1: HTTP. Well, I mean, so you had email, you had things like FTP, you had things like Telnet and and RSH R-login, which were precursors to SSH, you know, I mean, network time protocol. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of uh, DNS for looking up host names, you know, like, stanford.edu uh so all all of those things uh predate the web interesting i mean i I remember when i think i was in grad school the first time i saw a url in a subway advertisement i was like wow this is kind of a big deal like this this thing is kind of like really mainstream um was in boston at the time are you following sir tim
0: Berners lee's work with his like new internet concept um not
1: uh not super closely but what i've seen i i like uh a lot um you know i mean again should at this point probably be clear from context in terms of the things that that i care about right like I, i i don't i don't like the idea that you know of being locked into some service you know like all my photos are in if they're all in instagram then i can only access them through like instagram's api right. whereas if you could sort of disaggregate that stuff and like the storage is separate from like the service on top of that then the minute i get sick of instagram i could like go someplace else and you know use them to to serve my photos
0: yeah i like that independence right or how yeah. one of those like apple will ban an app you know from their app store it's like that kind of sucks like where's the app store that doesn't get banned <laughs> right, right. I, I like, I like to police ourselves. And I know right when you started talking at the beginning and you said that you have a problem with authority, you became my best friend. I was like, <laughs> Me too. I don't like people telling, uh, I don't like being told what to do because often the people that are telling, making those rules are less intelligent. And it's like,
1: yeah, mm. I mean, I would argue that given, given the status quo, I think you actually need people to, uh, you need people to, um. To police the app store, but part of the reason is that like most people don't have uh, root on their own phones, right? So this drives me crazy. So of course I would never carry around a phone that I can't root. But because I've rooted my phone, I lose access to a bunch of services, like I can't use Google Pay, right? Because Google Pay doesn't work even if even if you haven't rooted your phone. Just unlocking the bootloader on your phone means you're not allowed to use uh, Google Pay because there's hardware attestation uh, of whether your bootloader is locked or not. Um, and so yeah, you've basically got a situation where there's, you know, maybe a thousand engineers at Google who like basically decide what the ground rules are for everybody else. And then how many Android developers are there? You know, you know, probably like, you know, tens, hundreds of thousands. They're just working these little boxes that like Google is putting them in. And, and you know, that drives me crazy, right? You know, I want everybody to be able to innovate on an even playing field, everybody to have access to the same APIs. And again that that's kind of what drove me to work in security because yeah you have to worry about security in that case but you know in a lot of situations i feel like you can actually improve security and improve freedom because the less you trust the less you need to trust people you know the higher your security because your your uh, you know your perimeter of trust is smaller your so called we think, often call it the trusted computing base right so smaller uh, attack surface Uh, you know, smaller trusted code base and more freedom because, you know, more of your code is untrusted. Therefore, more of your code doesn't need access to special APIs to, to, you know, do what it needs to do. Dude, this
0: is awesome. I I really enjoy like you helping me wrap my mind around these concepts and what Stellar is doing. To me, I'd say I always look at things or when I give talks out in public, which used to happen, right? Um, I would always say, what are the things I want people to walk away with? right because you remember you have the forgetting curve the rate at which you forget information and it's like what do i want them to walk away with and i so i was thinking you know if anyone's going to walk away with like two or three thoughts about stellar what would those be
1: well about stellar i guess that that it's possible we have an existence proof that it is possible to have uh, an open payment network which is uh, entirely self-serve so if you have an idea you want to implement you can unilaterally implement that on top of Stellar, basically.
0: So if I wanted to make like a podcast token, right,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then it would somehow be currency, maybe like past guests, like you would come on my show and I'd be like, all right, you are great. I'm going to give you some of this currency and we could somehow set up a network and it could, you know, between other podcast hosts, I
1: haven't really thought about this, but is there, you can just do that, right? Yeah. And you can create you can create a market uh, between assets. So you know if you want to know whose whose podcast is worth more, uh, well, I don't know if that necessarily makes sense. But I've often thought that uh, do you know the website Stack Overflow uh, yeah. or the Stack Exchange, right? It's a network of websites, and you get reputation on one website, but it doesn't really help you on another website. And and it's kind of that's too bad because it would be cool if I could you know. Earn a bunch of credit answering questions about Linux, and then like trade that in for to add bonuses for like legal advice or something on like a different uh, stack exchange. Um, So, you know, certainly I don't know whether this makes sense from a business point of view, but from a technical point of view, you could totally tokenize your uh, reputation and create a market for reputation, and then you know websites could actually uh we we actually have some kind of measure of like how much reputation is worth on a on a different uh, on different websites now that might or might not work right so economically it could turn out that there's well-resourced attackers who like for them it's it's worth a million dollars to like buy up a whole bunch of credit and then like spread misinformation on some platform or something so I don't know but you know it's at least technically possible to build that kind of uh that kind of exchange interesting Okay. Yeah, I was just, I,
0: what brought it up is like, I was just curious when I heard that you can create your own tokens. I was like, what's the fun example to talk about that would work? And we're making like a, a decent amount of money from from the show. And I was talking to some other podcast people, and they are too. And I was just like, I wonder if there's a way for us to like exchange, like value somehow with a token. And without it being cash, like maybe like I have some sort of credit. Uh, and they have credit, and we can somehow exchange them, introduction to other guests, things like that. But I don't yeah. really know.
1: I mean, the basically, I think that the, the way I look at it, and I don't know exactly how it applies to podcasts, but there are a lot of uh, situations where uh, market where there's a lack of sort of transparent, well-functioning markets, and that's causing inefficiencies, right? Or it's causing unfairness, right? Like people might not be getting fairly compensated for their uh, labor or their goods because there's like not a transparent market. And so, you know, ultimately, you know, I'm a big fan of, you know, R- regulated, but very transparent and and liquid non-monopoly markets um, as a way to kind of you know, increase opportunity and uh, increase fairness. And so anything where you think like, well, if there were a market for this, if there were like a, a, a liquid sort of good market for s- something, uh, then Stellar is like a great way to bootstrap that market because you can create the asset and you can instantly list it for sale in exchange for any other asset, like say USDC, which is, which is worth a dollar or lumens, which is our native uh, cryptocurrency. Yeah. My last question about lumens.
0: So like I own, I don't know, like 2,500 lumens or something, right? Mm -hmm. What can I like do with them? (laughs) Like, what, what do I do with them? Like, like, are you guys are lumens like your proof of concept for what you're allowing other banks to do?
1: so lumens are so there's there's a difference with lumens which is that they're the one currency that doesn't have a counterparty so it's kind of a neutral currency that has value as long as the whole as long as the whole internet is you know as, as long as the whole network stays together right these lumens will have value and there's a couple of uh reasons why it's useful to have a neutral uh currency one is it it's just an anti-spam feature, right? We don't want someone creating like, you know, a billion accounts on the network just to spam us. And so each account has like a minimum balance in terms of lumens, which I said is a lumen. Now you can get that back. You can merge your account with another account and get back the lumen. So it's just a, a deposit, but, uh, but that limits, you know, creating too much ledger state if you're not willing to pay for it. Um, and the second thing is, um, the uh, there's transaction fees which are like pretty small but if the network ever becomes congested then essentially it turns into an auction where like the more you bid in lumens the more likely you are to get your uh your transaction uh into the block oh so it's a way to bid on the network that's right, like if if there's limited capacity on the network. now there's a there's a second use, which is that uh, it it's maybe useful for market makers, uh, you know, in terms of uh, if you want to, like I said, we have these like path payments where you can go from like A to B to C or ABCD even but different assets might have sort of different regulatory requirements attached to them like maybe in order to like hold dollars uh you have to uh get approval from whoever issued them because they're responding to whatever regulatory pressures and so there might be a lot of people in the world who they just don't want to touch dollars and today sort of by necessity just a lot of stuff ends up going through dollars, even though the two ends of a transaction don't care about dollars. And so Lumens provides um, you know, an alternative. And, you know, we're not forcing this on people, but certainly if everybody who created a new asset decided to make a market for that asset in terms of the Lumen, then you'd sort of be able to get between any two assets, uh, in a, you know, sort of a two hop, uh, path payment. Or they can choose to use dollars for that as well, right? But it's it's another option that we have uh, on the table. Interesting. All right. Cool. And every account can hold lumens, so there's a slight benefit. You have to consent to hold other assets because we don't want people spamming you with assets that you don't care about. But you know, it's convenient that everyone can hold lumens. So I guess that, that that's the value of the of the lumen. Nice. How will the price of the lumen go up? because the
0: network gets bigger
1: so you know first of all we don't you know we don't lumens are a utility token right so we don't in any way promote it as something like uh that's intended to increase in value right now to be honest i mean i just think a lot of the a lot of there's a lot of volatility in the blockchain space and a lot of it is due to speculation and exogenous events like at some point this nft craze is probably going to Crash, and that's probably going to hurt all the other cryptos, including things that aren't aren't particularly uh, doing NFTs like us. So I just think it a a lot of it is a lot of it speculation and not necessarily grounded in in the uh, economics of uh, of these tokens right now, unfortunately. So in
0: context specific, like what would all right? So there's there's two there's two parts. There's like the the people and the hype that's making things go up or down then the context of your example of how you can use lumens and they're used to help bid on fees if the network's congested and would is there anything built into like that concept like if would it be like let's take hype out of the equation okay if the networks get bigger will the lumens be worth more or
1: is there like infinite lumens or like how does this work no there's a fixed number there's uh, essentially 50 billion of them or maybe less because now the transaction fees get burned so well there were a hundred billion but then we we decided that we just had too many of them belong to the foundation the stellar development Foundation so we burned uh, uh, about half of them to leave 50 billion yeah that was the same Xrp problem I mean what? right that's like that was like a similar to the Xrp problem. And well, but, but but one of the things that we tried, we wanted to give them away to everyone. So we were doing like Facebook giveaways. So before airdrops were like such a trite thing, we were like, you know, one of the first people to try like really large scale airdrops. Um, oh, cool. And honestly, what happened was it worked at first, um, and then it sort of seemed to get like spammier and spammier, uh, you know, as, as we went along. So it's kind of one way to to view cutting supply in half as a way to double down on the early distribution that went well without sort of continuing now that people you know now that airdrops seem like a scammy thing and that like people know how to game them better uh, anyway so um, but but you know our you know one of the reasons that we're a nonprofit is we're our goal is to uh, promote adoption of the network and uh, um, you know in general like like our mission at the Stellar Development Foundation is to create equitable access to the global financial infrastructure right and right now we think that the best way to do that is through the Stellar network and you know probably we're going to continue to support Stellar and do that but we're definitely not our goal is not to you know, increase the price of Lumen or whatever, you know, it's, it is to, uh, to uh, create this equitable access to financial markets. I love it. I love what you're doing because I mean, I,
0: I think I already said it, but like the way it looks to me is all these banks have their own APIs and they're trying to like connect with each other. And you're like, Oh, let's create this standard or this API over here that anyone can plug into. And that just sounds really, really smart because what it does is it lets everybody come online in their own timing Versus if I were like a commercial entity and I was trying to push an API and get adoption within a market, I would have to go around and set everybody up and teach my methodology and like put cost and then there would be a cost structure behind that and then the deployment of it. But if you say, hey, we're like this open solution. Here's the information. You can just go ahead and do it on your own timing. Then people can come and mosey on in as as they see fit or as the needs arise to them. And and honestly, I think that's like that's like a beautiful thing.
1: And I mean, you know, there's Metcalf's law, right? The value of the network increases quadratically with the number of participants, right? This is this is one of the real value propositions of the Stellar network that you integrate once, and maybe you initially integrate with Stellar because there's like one particular, you know, organization that you want to partner with to say, like, do remittances to one particular market. But now, if you suddenly want to access another market through Stellar, and there's like a payout uh, partner there who's already integrated with Stellar. It's trivial. You're already integrated with Stellar, right? So it make you kind of integrate once, and then you can interoperate with everyone. And right now, this is a thing that like totally doesn't work with remittances, where it's just like so many, uh, so much labor goes into like setting up the pay- like the the payment rails to each individual market that it's it's crazy, right? And th- and that's why sort of people who are you know lower down on the kind of size of the economy, right, they just aren't going to get the same priority. And therefore, they're just not going to get, you know, the the, the same level of service uh, and and the same cost structure, right? That's why, like, you know, if I want to send money to Europe, I pay like well under one percent, um, right? But like average remittances are like you know seven percent fees, say.
0: That's smart. How how much how much coverage do you guys have now? Like, is there, a, can I look at that on the website or how do I find that out? Like how many currencies um, do you support? Yeah, I
1: think we probably have links to various people. So we ourselves are, we're just maintaining the network, right? So think of us like the ITF, we're like specifying the email protocol. We even put out a you know a reference implementation, which is the one that everybody is using. Where's um, my Google? We, <laughs> what? Where's my Google? <laughs> like, where's exactly, the- right, Your Gmail, yeah, or yeah. like, who's, who's your Gmail on there? And so, you know, I would say, you know, it's like Kauri in Nigeria, and, and uh, well, if you look at... We did actually put this, uh, this we made this product called, called Vibrant that is an app for people in Argentina and other places to be able to, I think we've at least launched in Argentina, uh, possibly other places, to save US dollars. So this is something there's a huge market for is the ability to save us dollars in some way other than sticking actual bills under your mattress and you know if you're not a us citizen if you're like an argentine citizen you can't just you know open a us dollar denominated bank account um so this app is uh is filling a is is meeting a demand that's currently unmet oh and that's how you're making banking
0: more accessible yeah that's smart dude david this is amazing. I want you to know, like huge fan of you and what you're doing. If there's ever like information that you want us to push out or share, be more than happy to. Just send us an email, get some more, more people uh, informed out there about what's happening in the cryptocurrency world and what's going on with Stellar. Cool. All right. Well, thanks. It's good talking you. to you.